in life, there are things we need and things we don't need. For needs, you have your essentials. Punk rock, air, water, food, and video games. And yes, I'm aware that I put punk rock above air in terms of needs. For things you don't need, you have pop music, pop punk, pop rocks, soda pop, Mary Poppins, and, well, also video games. And for me, one thing I have never, ever needed is a horse. Like, my place is already pretty small, and a horse would quite literally destroy my house. Uh, unless we're talking about one of those miniature horses, which are just plain cute. Though, I still don't need one. Anyways, in 1804, two men needed a horse. Actually, they needed lots of horses. Those two men were Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Really? His, 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 name, his, his name was Meriwether? His, his name was Meriwether? And it wasn't just them, but it was in fact all the men that were a part of their expedition. Fortunately, though, they knew where to get the horses in the form of one of the tribes that was along their way to the Pacific Northwest. Problem was, they didn't know how to talk to the people who currently owned the horses, the Shoshone. What they needed was an interpreter, a translator, a cultural ambassador, if you will. And they found one, in one of the most important young women in American history. And she happened to be a level 20 druid. there everyone welcome to episode 5 of heroes in history where we bring history to your character sheet in this episode we look over the life of saka Gawea, the young but incredible girl who helps guide lewis and clark in their final stretch of their adventure as a druid in DD. it's episode 5 of heroes in history bana punk rock aj nanani hunt that's Shoshone for Hello, I'm Punk Rock AJ. I'm so happy to be here and I'm very happy to be a part of your day as I'm super excited for this build and episode. But first, a bit of Heroes in History news. After months of me being bad at interneting, Heroes in History finally has a Patreon! Woohoo! Now, I know announcing a Patreon page is par for the course for any modern podcast at this point, but for what is worth, the Heroes in History Patreon will grant you some pretty cool things. For $3 a month, you can join the Squire tier. This is the most basic tier, but you still get some good things. First of all, you get direct access to polls and other fun posts on the Patreon page, but that's just the beginning. At this first level, I will email you character sheets upon request. Look, I'm a one-man show, and I don't necessarily have the ability to just be making character sheets all day, but with this, I'll be sure to send you a character sheet for the men and women you find the most interesting upon request, I'll also read your name on air as a special Patreon. Thank you for each episode. And down the road, I'll be sure to add a Discord with this level. I just want to get some listeners before I make one. I'm still kind of new to Discord. I don't quite fully get it, honestly. But I will be sure to make one as soon as I start having a few more um, patrons. So <clears throat> for $5 a month, you get a very special bonus. Once a month, I will dedicate a mini-build to a historical figure of your choice. 
What do I mean by mini build? Well, at the moment, I admit to still kind of grappling with the process of podcasting as a whole, and I am a bit reluctant to commit to doing any sort of character request feature for a tier. I also like a certain bit of control with who I dedicate an entire episode to. That said, I am fine with doing mini builds, which will include a five-minute breakdown of someone from history you find interesting, and then I will take the person to a level three build. I will work with you to make sure the person is appropriate for the show, and who knows, maybe the person might end up getting their own episode anyways. You know, there's not going to be an example of this feature for this episode, but look forward to a mini build with the next one. Finally, you have the Lord tier. With this tier, in addition to all the previous benefits, you will have access to an extra show, Heroes and Mirth. This will include episodes such as retrospectives of terrible history shows, versus matches, having the builds fight each other, short stories, and so on, I don't know. I'll announce this month's episode of Heroes and Mirth with the release of the next episode. Kind of have a few things up in the air in terms of scheduling it with some possible other uh, players. But if not, the backup that I have planned should still be very, very, very interesting. Ultimately, though, at the moment, I am just thankful for anybody who happens to stumble upon my little show and takes a listen. If you want to support me, you know, I absolutely appreciate that. I'm doing H&H not for any immediate financial gain, but because I just truly enjoy discussing history as a whole and hopefully being able to educate and bring some laughs to the world. But if you do choose to support me, you know, I, I cannot possibly thank you enough. I promise you, your money will absolutely be helping a poor NorCal punk rock boy out. And I'll, I'll make sure that I continue to make sure that Heroes in History is just a great listen and is something that can really brighten, you know, help your day out. That's really why I want to be doing this show. So you can find my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash punk rock aj podcasts you can find one more time you can find my patreon at www.patreon.com slash punk rock aj podcasts more social media stuff to come like i said i've been kind of bad at interneting but the patreon account was what i wanted to get done first and plan out the tiers and next will be things like a facebook page and other stuff like that so back to the episode now Before we go any further, I should clarify the language and terms I will be using. In this episode, we are building Saka Gawea as a druid in D&D, and as such, I will be referring to her and the indigenous peoples of the North American continent as Native Americans. That said, there are many terms for these people, and none of them are truly perfect. First Nation, Indigenous Peoples, Indians, American Indians, again, none of these terms are really perfect. I will be using Native American as it is the term that I personally am most familiar with. However, I will only be using that term where applicable. Otherwise, I will do my best to primarily refer to these tribes by their given tribal names. Please, sincerely, please, if anyone feels the need to inform me or correct me of any mistake I make in regards to this matter, please do not hesitate. Please let me know and I will update this episode with future amendments and future corrections. You know, this is something that I really want to make sure I get correct. So please let me know. And of course, the email there is going to be punkrockhapodcasts at gmail.com. But yes, today we're building our first druid. So as such, let's go over the history of this class, starting with the name itself. So the druids. 
The Druids were the original priestly class of various Celtic cultures across ancient Europe. They were something of a healer, lawmaker, priest, advisor, but not quite king or warrior. At least not that I think has been easily been determined. And yep, let's just get this stupid reference out of the way. In ancient times, hundreds of years before the dawn of history, lived an ancient race of people. Kidding aside, there really is very little known about them. I went through a big Celtic phase a while ago, and part of what spurred that fascination, which I still have, I'm still a big fan of the Celts. There will be builds dedicated to Celtic peoples in the future, Celtic people of interest in the future, is the idea that Celtic history truly reaches back into prehistoric times, yet despite that we have so very little reference to them and, well, ancient Celtic culture in general. Almost all what we know about the ancient Celts of this time period comes from the writings of Roman generals, the big one being Commentari di Bello Gallico, or the Commentary on the Gallic War, by a little-known Roman general by the name of... Oh, let me see if I'm getting this right. Oh, let's see here. Uh, Julius Caesar. Did, did, did I get that right? Anyways, this is Caesar's first-hand account, written sometime around the late 50s BCE, before Common Era. It's a detailed account of his personal battles with the Celtic and Germanic tribes at this time, but as it is written from his oh-so-humble viewpoint, it is a very flawed account. But as the Celtic people did not have a written language, works like this are almost all that we have to rely on, and even if it even if the Celtic peoples did have their own writing system, it is often suggested that the Druids themselves may have had certain vows and oaths taken upon what they could actually reveal in terms of their beliefs and practices. It's not entirely clear. It is up to us then, in the modern time, to parcel out as much of the truth as we can. Hopefully we have a high enough wisdom score to do so, but... Despite our lack of knowledge about the Druids, though, they did appear sporadically throughout the sen following centuries in poems and brief references, especially those coming out of Ireland and other Celtic cultures. In these stories, they often do appear as spellcasters and sorcerers, but still in a very different manner than from their future appearance in D&D. Speaking of which, so skipping forward by, well, a lot, we come to the 1970s, specifically the year 1974, with the publication of the D&D supplement Greyhawk. Wait, what is an RPG supplement? Well, the original Dungeons & Dragons was published in 1974 as a boxed set, but it was limited in scope, especially in regards to player classes. There were only four, those being the Fighting Man, Magic User, Thief, and Cleric. So D&D supplements were created to expand upon the core books and give the players more options for creating their characters. Greyhawk was the first such supplement, named after Gary Gygax's home campaign and its surrounding world. 
This is where the druids first appeared, but oh, not as a player character class option, but as monsters. Yep, they were villains meant for the player to fight against. Still, while not all the details were quite worked out, we do get an introduction to their abilities and, well, what the druids were all about. Druids are deeply associated with nature. They live in the wilderness and protect it as their wards. In some ways, this makes them the opposite of clerics. Whereas clerics get their abilities from one primary deity, druids get their powers from collected nature spirits, most often coming from the environment that they represent. Druids cannot use metal weapons, mostly. Actually, this specific detail about them has greatly varied in terms of severance. The idea that since metal is forged by human hands and does not come directly from nature, they cannot use it. Currently, the 5th edition of D&D states that they do have proficiencies with a few metal weapons, such as scimitars, but it stresses that druids cannot use metal armor and shields. They also don't get unarmored defense, which strikes me as a bit of an oversight. Maybe their abilities make up for it. And what are those abilities exactly? Well, the big one is that druids are natural shapeshifters. They can change into different animals, a power that can increase in time, in terms of what animals they can and cannot transform into, a power that seems to come from some of those aforementioned stories and poems about them. They also speak Druidic, a secret language only taught to Druids. This power appears to vaguely come from the notion that the Druids may have had restrictions on what they were able and unable to reveal, but maybe that's just a coincidence. And they are decent spellcasters, with a wide variety of spells to their name. They can also be melee fighters, but generally they are a great sort of mixed class. After their first appearance, the Druids appeared as a player character class in AD&D, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, published in 1977. From there, the Druid class appeared in every edition in D&D, but to my mind, really only fully crystallized in the third edition, published in the year 2000. From there, they are what one would now consider to absolutely be one of the core classes of your standard D&D player's handbook. By the way, a quick reminder, while this isn't always the case, it's worth pointing out to all those curious enough to do so that it is very easy to find Caesar's commentary and the diaries of Lewis and Clark. They are freely available online and absolutely worth reading if you have the time and the patience and the interest. So, <laughs> before we get to our starlet, Let's lift the shield and go over what I like to call the casting call process of Heroes in History. Not because it's especially complicated, but more because it highlights one of the limitations of this concept, recreating historical figures in Dungeons and Dragons. Or maybe strengths, if you squint at it? You see, there are a few different ways one can look at history as a whole, one of those being the Great Man Theory, a theory originally formulated by Thomas Carlyle, a Scottish essayist and philosopher in his book On Heroes, Hero Worship, and the Heroic in History, published in 1841. This discipline looks at how, often, individuals can determine the way history turns. Look at our last episode for an example. The Knights of Malta wouldn't have won the siege without the leadership of Lavalette. Okay, that makes sense to a point, but the obvious disadvantage of this way of looking at history is that it is so narrow in scope. The Siege of Malta was part of a larger conflict when control of the Mediterranean was still very much up for grabs between the great empires of the time and wars that would go on to shape the modern world. This is part of the latter theory of big history, which looks at history on a 
macroscopic scale, searching all the way back from the Big Bang Theory to the modern day, which incorporates such diverse schools of thought such as biology, anthropology, geology, and so on. So why on earth does the Siege of Malta get any credit whatsoever, really, in the grand scheme of things? By the way, that's a rhetorical question. Obviously, it's good to take a balanced view. Sometimes you really do get the right man for the right job at the right time, with just a smidge of the right amount of luck just to boot. I bring this up because, by the nature of its conceptualization, Heroes in History embraces the great man-woman theory of history to no small amount of my own chagrin. I'll always do my best to make sure I paint with as wide a brush as possible and talk about the larger forces at work with each of these talented individuals from history, but it's definitely an echo of that older discipline. Not that this is always a bad thing. Throughout this series, I have plans to highlight quite a few obscure figures from history that hopefully won't be very familiar to most of my listeners. And that's great, I can't wait to sing their praises. Ah, but then you get people like Sakagawea, the star of our show. And people like her and their accomplishments in history kind of throw the speech I just made for a loop. A speech that I had originally planned for the last episode, but then it kind of got pushed out of in the writing process, only for it to come leaping back on me like a kangaroo hopped up on Red Bull. Because with a person like her, it's not just that both theories are working side by side, but are almost coming at each other, head to head, no holes barred. Allow me to elaborate. You see, early on, I had pegged Saka Gawea as a candidate for a build of some kind. She's famous, iconic, and important. After some deliberation, I've chosen to build her as a druid instead of a ranger. While rangers are explorers and are often tied to the land, they are also hunters, and I couldn't quite fully picture Saka Gawea being built in such a combat-oriented fashion. Now, I will personally admit, Saka Gawea is not my first interpretation of a druid, and in this first season, I am trying to largely embrace the most base inspirations of these character classes. But at the risk of being hasty, I wanted to break up the amount of white men I had placed in this first season, so Saka Gawea got the part. Which, hey, congratulations, Saka Gawea. You're our first build that's non-white, non-male, and also our first mom. That's legitimately wonderful, so hopefully my hastiness can be forgiven. <laughs> but yeah, Saka Gawea kind of upends the spectrum a bit. She unfortunately didn't live a long didn't live long in life, and there's very little written about her. She's also very much a key player in an event that is part of the larger trend of America's Western expansion, that event being Lewis and Clark's expedition to the western coast of the United States. And yet, while it's impossible to say whether or not Lewis and Clark would have failed without her presence, they absolutely wouldn't have reached the level of success they did without her, and their mission would have been thrown into no small amount of jeopardy. Seriously, you wouldn't think it, but the Matrix kinda banded itself around Sokka Gawea once she showed up in their adventure. But who exactly was this teenage girl who helped define this future world's superpower? Well, guys, let's take a quick, quick look at Lewis and Clark first. Mind you, both of these guys are interesting and are totally worthy of their own builds, but they are not Sokka Gawea. Because she rocks. Again, emphasis on quick look. On March 4th, 1801, the Fox, Thomas Jefferson, the man who had 
mostly written the Constitution of the United States, became the third president of the young U.S. government. At the time, this consist consisted of what could largely summarily be described as the east coast of the continent, bar in Florida. The middle part of the country was controlled by the French, with the western part of the country, the land which consisted of California and the west coast, being controlled by Spain. Also Florida. Florida was a part of Spain. While I don't think these borders were fiercely controlled per se, the U.S. couldn't just march in and start exploring this middle area, which was still largely mysterious to the European presence. In fact, they thought mammoths might still exist here. Then, an opportunity presented itself, with the arrival of one Corsican ogre. Yep, Napoleon is making a cameo in this episode too. In the year 1803, Napoleon was, well, being Napoleon, and kicking almost everyone else's patootie back in continental Europe. Ah, but that was pretty expensive, and he needed cash fast. Hence, the quick sale of one-third of the continent to the American government for the sale of... $15 million. <laughs> Which equates to about $2 billion in today's economy, or something to that effect. And again, as this land was still mostly mysterious to the Americans, Thomas Jefferson quickly set up an expedition force led by Captain Meriwether Lewis and his buddy, 2nd Lieutenant William Clark. Together, they led 30 men, including themselves, up along the Missouri River, the longest river in North America. It stretches through the Rockies and northwestern part of the country and ends on the west coast in what is now modern-day Washington. It would take three years. And while both Lewis and Clark, along with all of their men, were military men by trade, and they were making this adventure armed, this was not a mission of war. Despite the future horrors and tribulations of Western expansion, Lewis and Clark's mission was also biological and diplomatic in nature, as they sought to learn of the environments that constituted the middle part of the country, and established trade connections with the many tribes they would meet along the way. Included with the 30 men were Clark's slave, York, and Clark's dog, Seaman. York in particular is fascinating and interesting in his own right. While still very much a slave, his presence ended up aiding the trip even further, as he was the first black man seen by many of these tribes. And while these tribes were fascinated by his ex appearance, they ended up treating him with a great amount of respect. As for Seaman, a large Newfoundland pup, I'll mention him again briefly later. Suffice to say that he survived the whole three-year trip. Ah, wonderful! All that said, while the land was mysterious to Europeans, let's not forget that this land wasn't a mystery to the millions of Native American tribes who had inhabited this land and had done so for thousands of years. Now, we're going to talk about our main star. For, for, for realsy reals this time, we're, we're talking about her. Today, we are looking at a young woman named Sakagawea. Actually, there are a few different forms of her name and its pronunciation, but it appears that it has been determined that her name isn't pronounced with a J sound, as, well, how I originally heard it. It is indeed pronounced with a harder G sound. For me, I'm going to stick with Sakagawea. Her name, by the way, in Hidatsa means bird woman, with Kagaka meaning bird, and Mia, meaning woman, 
Variously, it may also mean boat puller. She was born sometime in the year 1788 to the Lemhi Shoshone band of the northern Shoshone people. They lived in and still inhabit the Snake River Plain of southern Idaho and parts of Utah. They recognize as their creator Isa, the wolf, who is the older brother of the great trickster, Coyote, whom he must often save. Here they hunted buffalo, played tag, made moccasins, collected food, and, most importantly, fished for salmon. In fact, the band that Sacagawea was born into is also known as Agaidika, which means salmon eaters. To which I have to say, <laughs> is, is, is there any way I can come to the next big event, guys? Because I love me some salmon yum. Sign me up. <laughs> In the diaries of Lewis and Clark, the Shoshone are often referred to as the Snake People or Snake Tribe. This appears to be a misnomer, as the Shoshone were great grass weavers. They made these interesting grass huts, which was their main sort of living quarters. And the sign for grass was a wiggling finger, which to the European Americans may have resembled a snake. I mention this point because in their diaries, Sakagawea, who couldn't speak English, appears to have been extremely emotive. She wasn't mute or deaf, but Sakagawea did often use sign and joyful dances to convey her emotions and points. I'm not immediately certain, but signs like this appear to be main features of the Shoshone language. In the opening Shoshone phrase, you are actually supposed to put your hand on your chest as you introduce yourself. I admit I have to do more research on this. Point being, though, is that her tribe was the Lemhi Shoshone people, and today they are enrolled members of the Fort Hall Reservation. Um, quickly breaking script here. If anyone is interested in learning, you know, Native American languages, including the Shoshone language, there are resources available to you. They aren't always easy to find, but there are sort of language libraries that I found um, language revival projects in association with the Shoshone in particular. So there are resources available to you if you are interested. I always try to learn a little bit of the languages involved with these lessons, even or lessons with these episodes. And you know, I would definitely be happy to try to learn a little bit more Shoshone. It's, it sounds very interesting. So anyways, we know very little about what life was like for the young Sakagawe, though it's somewhat safe to assume that she would have been taught the basic skills of all young girls in her culture, and there otherwise probably wouldn't have been too much written about her. That all changed when, at 12 years old, her village was attacked in a raid conducted by the neighboring Hidatsa tribe, a tribe of the Sioux people, who inhabit the lands of modern-day North Dakota. The raid appears to have been quite deadly, in no small part because the Hidatsa owned guns, and several Shoshone people were killed during the raid. Why did the Hidatsa have guns? Well, the Hidatsa traded with the French, who allowed guns to be traded, while the Shoshone traded with Spain, who did not trade guns. The spoils of war? Sakakawe and several other women were kidnapped and brought back to the Hidatsa Mandan village as slaves. This would have been in modern-day Washbourne, North Dakota. Despite these harrowing events, it does appear that Sakagawe was relatively taken well care of by her Hidatsa, let's say, foster parents, that is, until she turned 13 years old. At the age of 13, she and the oft-overlooked Otter Woman, another Shoshone girl, who was a little older than Sakagawe, so her foster sister, if you will, were bought by a Quebecois French-Canadian man by the name of 
Toussaint Charbonneau, a fur trapper who had lived amongst the Hidatsa. A somewhat unsavory kind of shifty fellow, he would have been in his late 30s at the time, so already, ugh. Legend has it that he apparently won her an otter woman in a game of cards. That or her adoptive family traded her as a part of an economic deal. And what I'm about to say next is an extremely unfortunate fact, and not for the faint of heart, but it is a part of the history and so must be given its due. But Charbonneau's marriage was non-consensual, and he raped her. It's, it's just an... It's... It's... It's just... It's uh, it's just a very unfortunate fact, because when the Corps of Discovery, the Lewis and Clark expedition, made their way to the Hidatsa villages in the area, and eventually interviewed Charbonneau, the 16-year-old Sakagoya was already pregnant with her future son. However, don't be discouraged by this necessarily, because Sakagoya wasn't, in fact, Sakagawea was far shrewder and far more intelligent than any of the men in her immediate circle would have or could have anticipated. But first, why exactly did the Corps of Discovery hire Sakagawea? Because would you believe it if I told you that they wanted nothing to do with Charbonneau, who was, who was utterly useless? Seriously, no one liked Charbonneau. Even in the diaries, no one really liked him. He was very temperamental, and Lewis remarked that he was a man of very little worth. Apparently, the reason he had been living with the Hidatsa in the first place is because he had been fired from his previous trading company, the Northwest Trading Company, after an occasion where he had been stabbed after raping a native Sautier, Ojibwe, woman by that woman's mother. So, you know, just a huge jerk. Still, Lewis knew they had to hire him since Sakagawea came along with him and Sakagawea was the one they really wanted. Why? Well, because the expedition needed horses for the final leg of the trip through the Rockies, and the Shoshone, who they knew they would encounter next, had horses, and they needed someone who could talk to the Shoshone. Hence, Sakagawea. Bam. Mind you, again, Sakagawea couldn't speak English, but she could speak Hidatsa with Charbonneau, who had lived amongst the Hidatsa and learned the language. But Charbonneau could only speak French. Fortunately, one of the members of the corps could also speak French, who could then speak English. So, okay, it was a bit of a lengthy and clumsy game of telephone. But here's the thing. Sakagawea must have oozed both charisma and serious skill, because despite being pregnant, they still hired her, a 16-year-old girl, over another Shoshone girl of similar age and who wasn't pregnant. The Corps of Discovery knew they were going to have to deal with a baby at some point, and they still said, you're our girl. That tells us something about her. It tells us that she must have had an incredible personality and presence. Man, 
Poor Otter Woman. Like, IDK, there isn't much known about her, but it's just, she had to stay home while her adoptive younger sister went on this huge adventure and became a world-famous icon and inspiration to young women everywhere. Or maybe I feel so sorry for Otter Woman because, honestly, I just really like otters. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, Otter Woman, you're okay. After the winter of 1804 had passed, the Corps of Discovery got back on the road again. By this point, Sakagoya had given birth, and apparently it was a pretty close call. An extremely painful birth. One of the members had given her water mixed with crushed rattlesnake rattles to aid in the birth. I guess that aids in labor, but really, the reason it was such a dangerous birth, let's face it, is in no small part because she was still a teen herself. Thanks to the diary of Lewis, we know that she went to labor around 5 p.m., at one point, when near death's door, Clark, as a notion of peace, laid a beautiful belt he had that she had been eyeing, giving it to her as a gift. Nevertheless, on February 11, 1805, Sakagawea was able to bring Jean Baptiste Charbonneau into the world, or as the members of the Corps would affectionately call him, Little Pomp, or just Pompey. Also, the Corps gave Sakagawea the nickname of Janie which is pretty cute. <laughs> Janie. Anyways, after that, the adventure began! And again, she was about 16 years old. Six freaking teen. Wow. That's awesome. That's cool. <laughs> That's really cool. I don't know. She, she must have been really cool. Pretty quickly, they made their way into the Shoshone territory, as it was adjacent to Hidasa territory. Immediately, the importance of Sakagawea was made evident. On May 18, 1805, the Corps was trying to move up a river they were on, on pirogues, which are kind of like canoes. When the current flipped one over, scattering pages of detailed notes on the flora and fauna of the land, as well as tools, instruments, merchandise, and other incredible goods. That's when Sakagawea, with a baby on her back, pulled a trinity, and jumped into the river and grabbed handfuls of their notes and papers, saving detailed and hugely valuable information. That river then became known as the Sakagawea River, named after her honor, a name it still has. By the way, the man who had been piloting that boat was none other than Charbonneau, Sakagawea's useless, stupid jerk of a husband who was afraid of water and couldn't swim, despite being a frontiersman. He was crying to God and wouldn't get back on the trip until another member literally threatened to kill him. Ugh. Hey, let's, let's, let's keep the Sharpeno punching bag going, because he hated manual labor, the military, as well as the military routines of the men, and Lewis stated that he was a man of no particular talents. Oh, and he killed animals. Cute baby animals. And he hit Sakakawea several times, to the point where the crew had to break up their fights. Just, ugh, this guy is terrible. He's just terrible, ugh. Anyways, they got back on the road again, walking through the Shoshone territory. On August 8th, 1805, Sakakawea, who had still been helping out throughout this trip, pointed out a specific mountain, Beaverhead Rock, indicating that they were approaching Shoshone territory. As Lewis would write that Sakagawea recognized the point of a high plain to our right, which she informed us was not very distant from the summer retreat of her nation on a river beyond the mountains, which runs to the west. 
This hill, she says, her nation calls the beaver's head from a conceived resemblance of its figure to the head of that animal. She assures us that we shall either find her people on this river or on the river immediately west of its source, which from its present size cannot be very distant. As it is now all important with us to meet with those people as soon as possible, I determined to proceed tomorrow with a small party to the source of the principal stream of this river and past the mountains to the Columbia, and down that river until I found the Indians. In short, it is my resolution to find them or some others who have horses if it should cause me a trip of one month. For without horses, we shall be obliged to leave a great part of our stores, of which it appears to me that we have a stock already sufficiently small for the length of the voyage before us. Again, stressing the importance of horses, which I still don't need in my house. <laughs> and that's when Sakagoya pulled not just a trinity, but a neo, and the matrix bended around her again. Oh, what? You think I'm kidding? Huh? How you think I'm kidding? Well, listen to this. When they finally met the Shoshone tribe that ruled the land, the chief they met, Kameoates, was Sakagawea's long-lost older brother. After a tear-filled embrace, it ended with them not only allowing the bartering of horses, but the Shoshone gave them additional guides to help them finish the trek across the Rocky Mountains. As Lewis would write, Shortly after Captain Clark arrived with the interpreter, Charbonneau, and the Indian woman, who proved to be a sister of the chief Kameawaits, the meeting of those people was really affecting, particularly between Sakagawea and an Indian woman, who had been taken prisoner at the same time with her, and who had afterwards escaped from the Minetares and rejoined her nation. The chief of the Shoshone tribe they encountered was Sakagawea's long-lost brother, Kameawait. That is easily one of the most incredible coincidences in all of history. I mean, seriously, while it's impossible to truly quantify the odds, the fact that reality warped around Sakagawea so profoundly is staggering. Really, how on earth were Lewis and Clark supposed to make their way across the Rockies without horses? They couldn't take the boats, duh, and the horses were important not just for carrying supplies, but also, well, food. Even if they had made it across the mountains, they would have been left in terrible shape, all the worse. I can't get too speculative here, but that's actually kind of scary. In fact, during the trip through the Rockies, food became so scarce that they had to resort to eating tallow candles. Tallow, by the way, is beef fat. It got so desperate at one point, they had to eat beef fat candles. Ugh. Anyways, I'm just going to play the Matrix music again real fast. After passing through the Rockies, Sakakawe essentially saved the tribe by teaching them how to eat kamas roots, which are kind of like asparagus. 
It's worth noting at this time that really, as amazing as Sakakawea was, especially in regards to her incredible memory, Sakakawea ultimately had a profoundly positive psychological impact on the expedition and the Corps as a whole. Just having a woman and child on the expedition really helped for, lack of a better description, tame these hard-working military men. We know this because as little as we know about Sakakawea, the catch is that it wasn't just Lewis and Clark writing about her. Many of the other men also kept journals, so we can tell just how much positivity she really brought the group. Little Pomp especially became an object of great care and attention, becoming something of a mascot for the expedition as a whole. Also, when encountering other Native American tribes, well, they could see that this expedition was clearly non-aggressive, as Native American war bands didn't bring women along with them, allowing the expedition to avoid potential conflict with these tribes, and really helping to find Sakakawea as the incredible diplomat she truly was. Quick story. Right before the expedition made it to the Pacific coast, they encountered a tribe where Sakakawea ended up trading one of her beaded belts to secure an apparently beautiful otter skin robe, which was then later given back to Thomas Jefferson as a gift. That beaded belt? The same one that Clark had given to her when Pomp was born, showing that he and Sakakawea had a true friendship between the two. I hope you enjoyed that robe, Mr. President. I hope you enjoyed it a lot. The expedition did eventually make their way to the west coast to modern-day Astoria, Oregon, where they built Fort Clatsop, the place where they would stay for the winter, this being the final stop of their journey. This is more important than it sounds, as the members of the Corps had to vote on where to build this fort, a vote that included both York and Sakagawea. Now, this might be me stretching here, though maybe it's not, but if you really squint at it and maybe do a few mental backflips, that does kind of make both York and Sakagawea two of the first minorities to ever vote in, in an important American event. Alright, yes, that's me kind of stretching here, but again, it goes to show the importance of both York and Sakagawea. While there, the local tribesmen informed the party that there was a whale carcass at the nearby beach. The party was going to go inspect it and leave Sakagawea behind, but that's when she stamped her foot down and insisted that they take her along with them. She had never seen the ocean before, and after all the hard work she had done for them, this was the least they could do for her. So they did. They made it to the beach, which would have been the first time the young girl would have seen the ocean. It was a charming, wonderful experience. Seeing this rotting, blubbery, monstrous fish carcass. <laughs> um, <laughs> Seriously, though, it was a happy moment. I mean, that must have been amazing, especially for young Sakakawea, her seeing the ocean for the first time. Their journey complete, the party began the long, long trek back home as the expedition was over. Eventually, Sakakawea and Sharpano made their stop back at the Hidatsa village. For his work, Sharpano was given $500 and around 300 acres of land. And Sakakawea wasn't given a penny, despite some insistence by Clark, who, not surprisingly, also hated Charbonneau. Everyone hated Charbonneau. I hate Charbonneau, for example. There they attempted to begin a farm, him and Sakakawea, Charbonneau and Sakakawea. 
At the same time, Clark became the godfather to young Baptiste and ended up taking the boy under his wing and raising him. Baptiste himself would end up having an interesting and incredible life, even befriending a Germanic prince at a certain point. Sakagoya also apparently had a daughter, Lizette, but this, but this girl appears to have died in childhood or was otherwise shortly after lost to time. As for their mother, unfortunately, while not all the details are known, it does appear that she died of disease at the age of 25. An unfortunate end to one of America's greatest heroines. Fortunately, though, that's not really where the legend of Sakagawea ends. During the early 1900s, the American women's suffrage movement was picking up steam, and the leaders of the movement were looking for iconic figures to which they could look upon as role models. In 1902, suffragist Eva Emery Dye published The Conquest, the true story of Lewis and Clark, which helped ratify the importance of Sakagawea in the American conscience. From there, her popularity exploded. Sakagawea has been one of the most important role models for women in America. She's been a popular figure, especially in young adult fiction, and she has appeared in films as well, most recently in the Night at the Museum film series, wherein she has she is the romantic interest of Teddy Roosevelt. Okay, that's kind of weird. That's really weird. Even kind of makes me uncomfortable. I mean, I like those movies, but that's like all kinds of strange. <laughs> Though I gotta say, I loved Robin Williams as old Theodore. And by the way, a Teddy Roosevelt build is absolutely coming eventually. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt's the man. <laughs> um, but also an Imperials. We'll, we'll get to him eventually. Real quickly, I want to mention my favorite film about the Lewis and Clark expedition, 1998's Almost Heroes. Well, favorite isn't the right word. Actually, it's kind of a bad movie, but it was the last starring role of Chris Farley as the William Clark figure, and, well, you just don't get comedies like this anymore. A film that is all about spoofing one specific historical event. Like, you probably won't get many of the jokes if you aren't, like, something of a history buff. I don't know, you just kind of don't get movies like this anymore. It's like a movie kind of tatered to people who study this one part of American history. It's it's a little strange that way, but it's it's kind of fun in that regard. A book I want to mention is The Captain's Dog, My Journey with the Lewis and Clark Tribe by Roland Smith. It's the story of the expedition from the point of view of Clark's dog, Seaman. I read it in middle school. I remember it being really fun and a good read for our class, especially. But the fame of Sakagawea does not extend purely into the realm of media. There are many, many statues of Sakagawea in the U.S. How many, you ask? Well, Lifetime of the Lifetime Movie Channel, apparently, created the Lifetime Herstory map, which, to summarize, counted the number of statues of women across the United States. By the way, I was having trouble finding the year of this survey, so if anyone can clarify that for me, please let me know. Uh, anyways... Out of 5,575 statues of historic figures in the United States, less than 200 were of women. That's an unfortunate number that equates to about 4% of all the statues in America. But of that number, 16 are dedicated to Sakagawea, 
which makes her the most honored woman in the history of the United States, 16 being 8% of 200, maybe a little bit more. That may not sound like a lot in the grand scheme of things, but that's still a very solid number. Though, frankly, I think Lifetime may have missed a few. I don't know. I think I remember looking up the list of statues and thinking, like, there's like one or two more here, but <laughs> I don't know about that. But perhaps most astonishingly, in the year 2000, the U.S. Treasury released the Sakagawea dollar coin. These were widely distributed, and while I don't currently have one on me, I do remember being a kid and holding one. And that's in addition to all the parks and other geographic landmarks and music pieces named after her. Sakagawea is really, truly a continuously popular figure in the canon of American historical figures and heroines, which is amazing. Like, I just don't have any other description to make other than that one word, amazing. This girl was just truly amazing, and she did a lot and was very courageous, and yeah, she's just amazing. <laughs> about to embark on an unprecedented adventure to the great Northwest. Now get in the boat! It's a journey through uncharted wilderness. Oh, oh. Tell the men what they might expect to encounter. Once there was a hawk. <laughs> Pluck the man's eyeballs out of his sockets. <laughs> Fear will be our breakfast. Don't take her. Take me instead. Put your hands on your hips. No, I think I'll still keep the woman. It's an undertaking of epic proportion. All right, let's go over our goals for this build. As has hopefully been understood by this point, we are making a druid. Now, with a character class as unique as the druid, where they innately come with the ability to shapeshift into animals, the question arises, do I really need to stick with human or variant human? Like, would it be okay to, I don't know, maybe make the character a half-elf at the very least? The answer is no. Though, if you want to turn the race of any of my builds into one that is more fantastical, I highly encourage it. It's your game, have fun, and still do your best to respect the history. Anyways, for Sakakawea, we are going to be sticking with Variant Human, and we will be using the Standard Point Package. But I will, in the future, be mixing it up a little bit. I'll be using the Primary Human Point Arrangement, where it's just one in every stat. And I'll, I'm planning on using Custom Lineage, too. You can do some pretty interesting things with Custom Lineage, and I think it would still work for the show, but for now, for this episode at least, we're sticking with Variant Human, we're, we're just keeping it in the same ballpark. We are putting our 15 into Wisdom, the key trait for druids that aids them in their casting and their awareness in nature. Now, I maintain that Saka Gawe is more appropriate as a druid as opposed to a ranger. That said, if we're talking about feats of the individual, well, let's talk about feats of the individual. Not only was Sakagawea great at identifying plants that were suitable for consumption, as well as geographic landmarks, she appears to have been pretty good at tracking. How pretty good was she? Well, when searching for her Shoshone relatives, at one point she was able to recognize their trail by the pattern of the moccasins they had left in the mud. Let me say that again. She recognized them by the pattern of their moccasins in the mud. 
Wait, did I say pretty good? No, I meant to say that that is incredible, so eat your heart out, Aragorn. So we'll try to address feats like this in the build. So, 14 in Charisma. You were able to be charming amongst a band of military-trained men, despite having a useless jerk as a husband. You were able to convince them to take you over your sister despite being pregnant, and they all fell in love with your baby and, by extension, you. Your charisma is beyond incredible. Now, this is where we start to maybe get a little controversial because I'm putting 13 into strength. Yep, despite being a teenage girl, you still had to carry a baby on your back through mountains. If that's not amazing strength, I don't know what is. That must have been pretty hard to do. So, so the 13 in strength sounds pretty appropriate to me. Dexterity is at 12. Your reflexes were great enough to help save valuable notes for the expedition at the one point when you needed to. Constitution is at 10. I want this to be higher, depending on how one looks at it. You had extremely high constitution, in fact, as you were able to make your way through this whole adventure. That said, you sadly ultimately died at a young age. We have to put this at a low score. And unfortunately, we have to put an A into your intelligence, which is so unfair as you are very smart, in fact, but we have to dump something. Put one extra point into wisdom, one into strength. Even if you aren't a frontline fighter, at least you'll be able to hit that much harder when the fight comes to you. For skills, we are going to choose nature and perception. For background, we are going to take outlander, which fits amazingly well. With Outlander, we get one of the most thematically in-character features I have seen so far in this show. You get bonus skills and proficiencies in athletics and survival, but most strikingly, we get the feature Wanderer, which I'm just going to read aloud. You have an excellent memory for maps and geography, and you can always recall the general layout of terrain, settlements, and other features around you. In addition, you can find food and fresh water for yourself and up to five other people each day, provided that the land offers berries, small game, water, and so forth. That's incredible, and to my mind, means we don't need to take the keen mind feat, meaning we can save that space for a different feat. So, we're off to a great start, people. A great start. For our bonus starting feat, go ahead and take the skilled expert feat to represent how Lewis and Clark hired you because they saw how impressive your skills were. We can increase one stat of our choice, increase your wisdom, now taking it to 17. We gain one proficiency of our choice, put it in persuasion, to represent how you were able to convince the men to let you and your future baby aboard. We can also take one of the skills we have proficiency with, and now we get expertise in it. So go ahead and put it in your nature skill. Nature is tied to intelligence, which isn't great for you, but hopefully this will mitigate this effect a bit. For our first level spells, we start with two cantrips and two first level spells. For our cantrips, take Druidcraft, which has a bunch of minor effects, and Shillelagh, just so that we have one combat spell to aid us. And maintaining that Druid history, I guess. <laughs> For our two first level spells, take Goodberry, which lets you magically create a handful of magic berries that... While they only heal 1 HP, can help an adult stay fed for a whole day. And for the other one, take Long Strider, which will help grant you speed when traversing the land. Alright, at second level, we get our primary druid things that make us a druid. Boring stuff first. We get another first level spell, take Detect Poison and Disease. Originally, I picked this spell because I thought it would represent you being able to locate plants in the wild, but it's actually a bit better than that. 
It can allow you to magically detect poisons and poisonous creatures in 30 feet of you, even if they are behind barriers. It can also allow you to determine the nature of the poison or disease. That's nice, but not as nice as Wild Shape, the ability to transform into animals that you have encountered in your travels. For the sake of brevity, I'm going to let you read the rules yourself, but it's one of those spells that makes being a druid so much fun to play. It's a bit limited at the moment, but it will improve as we level up in terms of the CR of the monsters we can change into and how often. Additionally, we get to pick our druid circle, essentially our druid organization. This will define what kind of druid we are and what our abilities will be. For Saka Gawea, we're going to pick Circle of the Land, the clear choice, but ah, what type of land shall we pick? Probably Circle of the Forest, right? Hmm. Well, you know how we can solve this question? Let's take a look at the place where she would have grown up in, the Snake River Valley in Idaho, which is mostly forest. So we're going to take Circle of the Forest like we were originally. Though, honestly, if you wanted to pick one of the other obvious candidates, like Mountain to represent how she guided Lewis and Clark through the Rockies, or Grassland to represent the surrounding plains environment, you could pick either of those as well. They mostly won't change too much, but honestly, work with your DM here so they can help you clarify which choice would be perfect for the campaign ahead of you. From picking this circle, we get one bonus cantrip. Just go ahead and take Thorn Whip. Even though it says that this spell is used to target creatures, I like to think that this is how she rescued all of Lewis and Clark's papers when they fell into the river, just using her Thorn Whip to whoop, 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 whoop them and bring them back to her, so... <laughs> we also get Natural Recovery, an ability where you sit in nature, rest, and meditate, and regain some of your spell slots. Level 3. At this level, all we really get is some bonus spells. From reaching this level, we gain one first level spell and two second level spells. For the first level, take Create Destroy Water, always handy. For our second level spells, take Locate Animals slash Plants, which is exactly what it sounds like, and Protection from Poison, which allows you to cure your allies when they become poisoned. But oh, from Circle of the Land, we get two more bonus spells. Bark Skin lets you cover yourself in bark, acting like an armor and increasing your AC, and Spider Climb which allows the target you touch upon to move up and down vertical surfaces, or even climb on ceilings. Um, creepy? Still, with both Bark Skin and Shillelagh, Shillelagh, <laughs> Shillelagh, uh, you are still, I would say, a fairly decent enough, you know, combat fighter, at least in these early levels, so that is going for you. Level 4. We get a Wild Shape improvement, and we can take a feat. Go ahead and take the Observant feat. It allows us to lip-read a language we understand. We get plus 5 to our Perception and Investigation skills, and we can increase our Wisdom score by 1 point, taking it to 18. We also get another Cantrip and Second Level Spell. For our Cantrip, take Produce Flame, as fire is really important for making s'mores and, you know, surviving the night in the Rocky Mountains. For our second level spell, take Gust of Wind. Not quite an offensive spell, it'll slow down any attackers, disperse any gases, and we can make sure the wind is in our favor wherever we go. Level 5. This is just an empty level aside from spells. Here we get two third level spells. Go ahead and take Speak with Plants and Dispel Magic. For the former, you get plants with limited intelligence and can talk to them. Okay, that's cool, but this spell actually does more than that. While the plants can't uproot themselves, they can follow limited commands, such as being able to move branches and leaves. This extends to changing difficult terrain due to plant growth to normal terrain, 
and you can dispel the Entangle spell. Take note of this, this is going to become important in just a moment. Speaking of which, Dispel Magic. A spell that grows with your character, it will allow you to end spells of various levels. This makes it a great and useful defensive spell. Oh, wait, we also get two more bonus spells from our Druid Circle. We get Call Lightning, bzzzed, and Plant Growth. Level 6, we get one third level spell, Take Water Breathing, which is exactly as it sounds. More importantly, we get another Druid Circle feature. This one is Landstride. It allows us to move through non-magical difficult terrain without taking extra movement, and we can pass through non-magical plants without taking any damage from them. Furthermore, we have advantage on saving throws against plants that are magically created to slow you down, like with the Entangle spell. Now, this may sound a bit redundant, and maybe it is, but between plant growth and speak with plants, already we have very good control of, well, plants and associated environmental factors. Level 7, another empty level, but for spells. We get one fourth level spell, take Dominate Beast as a way to control any enemies that might attack you. We also get two more bonus circle spells, those being Divination and Freedom of Movement. Divination is one of those spells where you can ask the, D the DM a question in character, and then he or she coyly responds with a riddle that probably just confuses you more. We've all had those DMs. Maybe your DM is channeling the spirit of Coyote. And Freedom of Movement, which, yes, is another spell that lets you ignore negative effects of difficult terrain, but can also let you or the target of the spell move to escape magical restraints, and you get no negative modifiers for moving and attacking underwater. Between this and water breathing, Sakagawea really lives up to the legacy of her tribe's name, the Salmon Eaters, as she'll be able to catch lots of salmon with these spells, the Aigai Dika. Level 8. It's basically a repeat of level 4, with our wild shape ability improving and us getting a new feat. For the feat, actually, hold on to that thought as we're just going to increase our wisdom score instead by 1 point, taking it to 19. For our new spell, we get 1 for the 4th level. Go ahead and take Control Water, which lets us do a few different things, such as redirecting a water's flow or even flooding an area. As we are traveling up a river in a few parts, this will give our pirogues an even greater chance of making it to the Pacific Northwest. Level 9, and all we get is a bunch of bonus spells. From us reaching this level, we get one fourth level and one fifth level spell. For the fourth level, grabs Ice Storm. I don't think we'll really get any sort of ice control spells, but let's go ahead and grab an Ice Attack. For the fifth level, make it Mass Cure Wounds so that we have an actual healing spell to help our allies with. From our circle, we get Commune with Nature and Tree Stride. Commune lets us not just talk to the trees, but really get a sense of the environment, as well as detect any sort of monster and any building that might be in the area. Tree Stride is weird, but kind of awesome. We can magically enter a tree and then teleport to another tree of the same kind, some distance away, so long as it is living and mostly the same size. Level 10, we get one cantrip, one fifth level spell, and a druid circle feature. For our cantrip, take resistance, just a little save booster spell. For our fifth level spell, take awaken. Awaken is weird. Awaken lets you take a creature or plant that must have zero intelligence, and for 30 days it has an intelligence score of 10, and it can speak one language that you know. And for this spell, let yes, you actually can make trees walk, though again, it can also be used for creatures. The creature or plant is charmed by you for 30 days, after which it will choose whether to remain loyal to you depending upon whether you were nice to it. Neat. 
Our circle feature is nature's ward, which means we can't be charmed or frightened by elementals or fae, and we are immune to poison and disease. Yes, I recognize the sad irony of this, but it is just incidental to the build. Level 11, a big nothing level. We do get our first 6th level spell though. Take Find the Path, the ultimate explorer spell. This spell lets us determine the shortest, most efficient, though not always safest path. A truly useful spell for an explorer like yourself. Level 12, and we don't get any new spells, but we can take an ability score improvement. Put it in Wisdom to cap it out. Awesome! No new spells though. Level 13, all we get is a 7th level spell. Take Regenerate, which is another useful healing spell that can help the recipient regain HP and lost body parts. Level 14, we only get another Druid Circle feature, but this is our last one. This one is Nature's Sanctuary, which discourages creatures from attacking you. Not exactly super entertaining, but definitely useful. Level 15, nothing, but we get an 8th level spell, Antipathy slash Sympathy will be our choice. This is a charm spell that can either attract or repel creatures of your choice. I'll let you read it, it gets a little complicated. Level 16, let's take a feat. With Wisdom being maxed, we can now take a few things to really help us out in the physical department. Alright, in reference to that one episode where Saka Gawai started as Trinity when meeting her brother, let's take the Lucky Feet. The Lucky Feet is crazy. You get 3 points which allow you to bend fate to your will, essentially. When making an attack roll or save, you can spend a point to add an additional d20. There's a few more effects added to it, but the main point is that this is a feat you should run by your DM before writing it on your character sheet. It's that powerful. You are basically bending fate to your will. Level 17. This is a nothing level, but here we can take our first and only ninth level spell. Take Foresight. You choose a target. That target now can't be surprised and has advantage on attack and basically all of your save throws. Any enemy that tries to attack this target has disadvantage. Why this spell? Well, I like to think this is one of the ways you were able to help protect your son or future daughter. Level 18, and this is a bit of a big one. First, our bonus spell. Hey, let's take at least one crazy spell. Take Planar Binding. This allows us to bind an elemental, celestial fae, or fiend to our service. This is a long one, so I'll let you read it, but we get a new bonus feature as well. Or a few bonus features, I should say. First, we get Timeless Body. For every 10 years that pass, you appear to have only aged one. Hey, maybe this is how they ended up catching your likeness for the coin. You also get Beast Spells, which I had kind of forgotten about until going through this build again. Essentially, you can now cast spells in one of your animal forms. Level 19, we can take a 6th level spell, make it move Earth. Not just America's original sweetheart, Sakakawe is now an Earthbender. We can also take an extra feat, well, seeing as how you've managed to make it this far, go ahead and take the tough feat, which grants you one additional hit point for every level gained. This works retroactively, so you just added 19 points to your max HP. Level 20, one more 7th level spell, make it big damage, go ahead and grab Firestorm. Also, you are now an Archdruid. You have an unlimited number of wild shapes. And since you've seen a well, well, at least a dead one, now you should be able to turn into a live one. Alright, so let's go over the strengths and weaknesses of this build, starting with the weaknesses. While it's possible to build a very combat-oriented druid, Saka Goya isn't it. Kinda. She actually has decent physical stats, and we have at least a wide variety of different elemental attacks, so that avatar reference probably wasn't too far off, but we just didn't take much in the way of offensive spells, and we 
took a few, but even then it's not like we backed them up with any combat-oriented feats. And even then, while the tough feat helps, you're probably only sitting slightly over the 100 health range, which is dicey. <laughs> Pun, I think, accidental, yeah, so <laughs> that's great. Yeah, your 100 health range is kind of dicey due to the presence of spells like Power Word Kill. In the future, we'll try to make a druid that can hang in the ring a bit more, but again, Sakakawea just isn't that combat-oriented druid build. Also, she's unfortunately really dumb, and failing intelligence saves can be the roughest type of save to fail. Now, let's get to the main positive, which is that this is the ultimate survivalist build. You're great at finding where you need to go, whether by flying up high in the sky or having to meander through mountainous terrain. You can create water, handle poisons, control animals, are great at handling aquatic environments and aquatic situations, and are especially adept at moving through and controlling plants. Not only that, you're great at helping your party also handle these situations by providing them with ways to find food and water. Although I'm not exactly sure if this build is perfect for arctic environments. I mean, it may not exactly be perfect for every sort of environment, but it's, it's going to handle most of them pretty well. Regardless, this segues nicely into playstyle. Overall, Sakakue is an amazing build for an exploration-based campaign. Play up the guide bit. DMs, if you decide to incorporate the expedition of discovery into your campaign, or not even Lewis and Clark, maybe just, I don't know, any sort of dumb tourists, then Sakakue with her high charisma and wisdom and skill is a perfect build for your player who may be on the fence. As for playing a mom carrying her infant with her, well, that is ultimately up to the player. Okay, that's the end of episode 5 of Heroes in History. Yes, I'm still a little late on this episode, but at least I'm not 5 months late. Lol. I guess I'm still figuring out that balance between research and scripting. Still, I absolutely loved making this episode. Sakakue was even more amazing than I remembered, and I'm so happy to have provided for that one random weirdo on the internet who decided to be crazy enough to Google Sakakue and Dungeons and Dragons in the same sentence. Speaking of which, I know this isn't the smoothest of transitions, but let's talk about the legacy of important indigenous women in American history, as Sakakawe joins the rank of some incredible women who absolutely had an impact on the modern history of the U.S. I've saved this part for last simply because I wanted the first part of this episode to be all about her as we moved into the main build, but here we go. Of course, for most people of my generation, probably the most famous Native American woman is an animated one. Pocahontas, due to her appearance in the 96 Disney movie For Better or Worse. That said though, the historical Pocahontas is very interesting. But honestly, while we don't know a lot about either girl, Sakakawea kind of ended up with more feats to her name that just lent her to a better D&D build, and well, I don't know if this is something really worth extrapolating upon, I think the... <laughs> I think the Sakagawea Pocahontas comparison is kind of interesting to some extent. I even heard it somewhere that Pocahontas is more famous in the East and Sakagawea is more famous in the West. Not sure how true that is though. Perhaps Sakagawea is more famous overall though, as she has appeared in a few more films and books and she has had more statues made of her. To say though that this is a rivalry of any sort, well, that just isn't correct to say. They are both incredible young native women, and I hope we can talk about the historical Pocahontas more in the future. By extension though, 
Try learning more about the actress who lended her voice and appearance to Pocahontas, Irene Bedard. She's from Alaska, is a member of the native village of Koyuk in Alaska, and is an incredible person in her own right. Now, I promise, there will be more Native American women in Heroes in History, probably some who are much more combat-oriented, such as Pine Leaf, who was a famous warrior chief of the Crow Nation. A warrior chief, yeah. But one amazing woman who, while maybe not ideal for a D&D build, was Maria Tallchief. Maria Tallchief was one of America's breakout ballerinas, obtaining the rank of major prima donna in the 40s. On the political landscape, you have Wilma Mankiller, who recently passed in 2010. She was chief of the Cherokee Nation and did so much to aid in the help of her nation, adding native health centers and creating many literacy programs. Look, I know my podcast here is very nerdy, but hopefully I've mentioned some women, some women from history who you will absolutely enjoy learning more about. If you're curious, I'm going to try to make sure I add somewhere in my show notes a link to the Sacagawea Cultural Interpretive and Education Center, owned by the city of Salmon, located in central Idaho. It is a 71-acre park. This is a center I found out about that does many events for the local Native community, and you can donate to them, as I did as well. Their mission is to foster the knowledge and appreciation of the Agaidika Shoshone Bannock tribes, the Lewis and Clark Expedition, Western Frontier Life, and the Natural Environment. For a song for Sakagawea, I'm going to choose Prayer Loop Song by Christian Parrish Takes the Gun, better known by his stage name of Superman. When I think of Sakagawea, I do think of a largely positive person, and Prayer Loop Song is an amazing song. And just take a quick listen. Thank <laughs> you.
So Superman is a Native American rapper whose music is just great and whose life is super interesting. And I would be remiss if I didn't recommend a Native artist in relation to this episode. And Superman is one of today's best rappers. Absolutely. I really enjoy his music. And it can be very raw sometimes, but it's it's it can also be very positive too. As for the rhyme for the next episode, that is the hint I give for the fighter. Well, here it goes. <clears throat> These chains no longer bind me, and Rome shall no longer slight me. Send questions and comments to punkrockajpodcasts at gmail.com. So when this... Oh, I, I, I hope I don't speak too soon because anything can happen, I suppose. But this episode uh, is going to come out on a Saturday. And so my schedule is kind of changing a bit. Uh, originally, you know, I was going to try to do Here's in History every Wednesday. And my schedule is changing a bit. And hopefully I'll be able to put these episodes out on a more routine basis. Absolutely. I, I think I'm getting better about that. And they should be coming out more on every Saturday morning, which is great because as a kid, I enjoyed waking up and watching Saturday morning cartoons. And now, hopefully, Heroes in History can be a part of your enjoyable Saturday morning. It can be it can be the new Saturday morning cartoon. I mean, I hopefully Heroes in History can be as good as Monster Rancher, which was my favorite, by the way. That was my favorite one. <laughs> um... Yeah, I, I was a Fox Kids sort of kid. I, I also liked Metabots. Metabots was pretty cool. And Shaman King, which has a great theme song. And I guess they just made a new Shaman King show on Netflix. I'll, I'll have to check it out. But <clears throat> So, okay, one more time, because I kind of spaced out there for a little bit. Send questions and comments to punkrockhapodcasts at gmail.com. Special thanks to BT Newberg and Rachel Westoff for the awesome logo art. Please uh, consider checking out Newberg's podcasts deadideas.net and historyofsexpod.com if you would like to support the show go to patreon.com slash punkrockajpodcasts and remember dear listener the die is mightier than the sword Roosevelt, this is my friend Rebecca and Anna. Hi. And this is Sacagawea. Wea. Wea. I think uh, she has a few questions she wants to ask you. You rock. I am a big fan. <laughs> what would you like to know? Oh, well, I, I mean, 